following discussion is not necessarily the views of all involved. The goal is to start open and honest discussion in the Christian worldview. Like all things, weigh what you hear with what you know and join us in our pursuit for the truth. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, it was once described to me as the Bible without the Holy Spirit in it. Yeah, I don't know. Is <laughs> lazy eye? Yeah, you read two books at once. <laughs> Which relates to our Ruth episode. And also uh, the Vikings. Let's just tie it all together. <laughs> I didn't think we'd talk about Vikings in today's I've episode. been dying to talk about Vikings this whole episode. You just didn't know about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, I'd like to welcome everyone to the Second Rate Saints podcast. I'm one of your hosts here, Caleb. To my left is... Uh, it's Joshua. And to my left... I'm Joel. And, uh, well, to my left, you're going to notice the first ever uh, guest on the Second Rate Saints podcast. My name is Chris DeWinter. I happen to be Josh's pastor. Um, and I don't know if that's what made me uh, warrant being the first guest here, but... Uh, I'll do my best to fill in the expectations. Nice. You're Josh's pastor? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have a a choice in it. Josh did. He was on the search team that called me to this church, actually. So it's his fault. So if you become podcast famous, I'm the reason. Well, I mean, this Mm. podcast would be because it's the only podcast to date that I have been on. True, true. Wow. The first of many, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to do the, the whole circuit after this, it's Rogan. Yeah, after this one, it's, yeah, Rogan is the next step, really. That, that's, I'm, you know, I've listened to all your podcasts, guys. I think there's a lot of space in between. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, to my left is Caleb. Hi, true. everybody. Josh is so excited to talk to his pastor. It's great. Um, <clears throat> we are missing Colton and Stuart. Um they're with us in spirit. They're with us in spirit. But Joel, what do we do on the internet? Not much. Just hang out. You say no, that we, every time. I do. Yeah, because it feels like there's an opening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to check out what we're doing online, secondratesaints.com is going to be the best place to find that. Um, we've got uh, blog articles. We've got book reviews. We've got links to all of our um, episodes and shorts. Um, you can find a lot of those on YouTube and on Spotify. Yeah, so uh, make sure to keep an eye on what we're doing. Um, any announcements would usually come through either the YouTube channel or the Instagram page. Um, keep leaving those awesome comments. Um, Josh, you were saying something about maybe introducing our topic. Uh, yes. Uh, Stuart's going to cut that part out, though. But uh, Chris, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> You're a guest. The first one. Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, I am a pastor, um, pastor at Langley Emanuel Christian Reformed Church, which is a church that Josh has uh, grown up in, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been pastor at Langley Emanuel for uh, almost three years. September will be three years for me. Prior to that, I was pastor at a church in St. Catharines, Ontario, for 10 years. Uh, that was the first church that I served. I come out of seminary. I'm a graduate of Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, which is a denominational school for the Christian Reformed Church. That's so cool. And then <laughs> after, uh, or before going to seminary, I was a student at Redeemer University, uh, where it's a small, uh, relatively small Christian university in Hamilton that has about a thousand students. <clears throat> That's cool. 
It's, it's a lot bigger a than small a small school's got a thousand <laughs> students. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's not Summit. I'm aware of that. <laughs> being from Grand Rapids is like being from the Hollywood of theological books. Everything is published in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah. Um, so if you've ever struggled to footnotes, you know where that is. <laughs> That's very true. In yeah. fact, uh, half of my personal library are seconds and misprints from Erdman's and Baker and. Uh, Zondervan and, mm. and IVP. Yeah, the so, list goes on. Yeah, the list does go on. That's yeah. so cool. So is it a, an MDiv that you have? Yes. Gotcha. Yep. So I have a, my Master's of Divinity. Um, I toyed with the idea of uh, doing a THM and staying for an extra year at seminary. Um, but my lovely wife, Rachel, uh, said, nope, it's time for you to stop being in school. And for you to start contributing positively to our financial situation. Uh, so you have to go to work. Yeah. Well, so. and that's an interesting difference between my own tradition, Pentecostalism, and the Reformed, is that you guys actually require uh, a master. So not everyone who's listening might actually you know, clue, clue in that that's what's going on. But you needed a master's to that's preach. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. To be a, a minister of the word uh, mm-hmm. or a lead pastor uh, in our denomination, you are required to have a master's of divinity or its equivalent. And so there mm-hmm. are other routes to ordination uh, that the denomination uses, but the ordinary process requires a master's degree. Wow. <clears throat> so what do you think inspires that level of um, the requirement for that level of education? Like, what do you think that's rooted in? Do you think that's uh, rooted in the traditionalism of it, or do you think that's something that's a newer idea? So the Reformed tradition, um, going back uh, to John Calvin in the Protestant Reformation, has always had a strong emphasis on um, education, on Mm -hmm. higher education, um, but also on being uh, thoroughly rooted in the scriptures. And so Mm -hmm. the requirements to study the original languages, uh, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have uh, uh, a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. Um, My Hebrew is not as good as it once was. (laughs) Uh, My Greek is still pretty okay. Um, And the the tradition uh, of uh, churches in the Christian Reform, but more broadly in the continental Reformed tradition or the European Reformed tradition, as well as the Presbyterian tradition, which is Mm -hmm. a sort of cousin tradition coming out of Scotland, Mm -hmm. um, has always had a really strong emphasis on the the academic life of uh, studying scripture and being rooted in the word and Mm -hmm. trained in philosophy and and wrestling through those sorts of issues. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and the reason I ask that is because, again, we're setting kind of a baseline because I didn't know that before meeting Josh, right? Like these are new things that I, <laughs> right. I didn't realize there were uh, traditions that required that level of education before you could even have a position, like a proper position in the church, um, if that's even the right way to phrase it. And again, I probably know the least out of all three of us <laughs> about that. So if my questions are stupid, cut it out and throw it off the... The yeah, edge, and yeah. I don't. I don't think your questions are stupid. I would say ordinarily <laughs> I required. I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's it's an ordinarily required. So mm-hmm. um, there are uh, ways um, in our church order, book of church order, we talk about ordination through special gifts. And so, if people mm-hmm. have clear gifts of preaching and teaching, um, sometimes they can circumvent the ordinary means. But again, there's going to be requirements for them to uh, do continuing education and to brush up on the language in particular mm-hmm. before that. There's also another route to ordination in our church polity that um, 
is more regionally contained. Um, and so in our denominational structures, and this is going to nerd out for some um, people and most people <laughs> won't care at all. Um, but in the denominational hierarchy that the Christian Reformed Church is part of, um, we have ministers of the word like myself who are ordained denominationally and we can serve anywhere in the Christian Reformed Church, which is sort of primarily located in North America. Although we do have um, sister Christian Reformed denominations in Venezuela and in Korea and in um, a number of African countries as well through missionaries okay. that went out there. Um, and so I can serve in any of those churches. There is another form of ordination where we call commissioned pastors, that okay. they're able to serve in a specific region. Now, we call those regional gatherings of Christian Reformed churches classes. It relates to an old Latin word for mm. association. Um, but in BC, for instance, we have two regional gatherings um, of churches, classes BC Southeast, which is the one that we're part of here in the mm -hmm. sort of southern lower mainland south of the Fraser River, and then BC Northwest, which is mm. everything above the Fraser River, basically. Okay. And there's um, 17 churches and ministries in BC Southeast and 22, I think, in BC mm. Northwest. Don't quote me on that. That one I'm pulling from the hip on. So Okay. I don't think many people from classes are going to be listening to this quite yet. That would be impressive. <laughs> Just Kevin, maybe. And yeah, only true. if I tell him to as part of his job requirements. Uh, Kevin true. is our co-pastor. Do you mind if I... I have uh, some fun questions that I, that I like to ask to get people to know people. Yeah. Um, what... Not which biblical book do you enjoy the most or do you like get the most out of, but which one has influenced you the most? And uh, excellent. Um, I'm, I'm mindful of this conversation, having listened to your Bible books ranking episode. <laughs> That's and... a terrible episode. Don't even bring that up. <laughs> yeah, well, you should have been there, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I missed that one. I was getting married, and you guys were like, well, now let's just... Anyways, not over it. Um, so which book has been most impactful? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the book of Philippians... Um, speaks to my heart, um, uh, and I appreciate um, and love the the joy and the rejoicing that Paul calls believers to in the midst of that, uh, especially recognizing that it's a letter that he wrote from prison, um, and the the majesty of Philippians two and the the Christ hymn out yeah. of Philippians two um, makes my heart sing, and mm -hmm. then. Uh, after the Christ hymn, um, Paul talks about shining like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Um, that's the old NIV translation. It's a little bit different in the newer NIV translation. But I love that image of um, amidst the darkness of the world and reality, shining like stars, and how we shine like stars as Christians is by holding out the word. Mm. And it's the power of the word to uh, draw people to experience Christ, which I think is just a beautifully compelling image. Uh, and then out of that, Paul goes into his um, his CV of you know as a Pharisee and how he considers that all rubbish. Which the word there is is a slang <laughs> word. It's very interesting Paul's word choice there, and I, and I just think that um, I can. Uh, I can identify with the way he talks about um, his past and what that means for him. So, mm. 
Yeah. We're not allowed to say scuballer on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you can't say scuballer. Yeah, they've had to cut out me saying that too many times. That'll be bleeped. Or, tr- or translated. <laughs> or the other. Translated to English. <laughs> yeah. Should we jump in? Sure. I think we can get into our questions, yeah. I'm excited for it. Yeah? Okay. So, Chris, we wanted to invite you on to talk about how does the church operate in the modern world? Kind of subjective is how we're kind of looking at modern. And one of the first things we wanted to ask you is, what are the defining characteristics of this modern world? What makes this world the way it is right now? The West, more our context. Um, yeah, so in, in, I think I'm going to, I will answer from um, my experience and perspective serving churches uh, as a pastor in Canada in the mm. 21st century um, while reading from a variety of sources and um, having conversations with people more uh, globally, but specifically focusing on um, what many people, I guess, have called uh, either the post-Christian reality we find ourselves in, or I think we want to nuance that and say increasingly post-Christian mm-hmm. reality, um, because it's not yet fully uh, post-Christian, nor am I sure it ever will be, but we can mm-hmm. come back to that. Um, and so th- as to the question of what does it mean um, to... Uh, to do church or to be Christian in that kind of age and culture. Um, I think uh, a couple things. One, um, there was um, someone who said, um, Julian Barnes, uh, he wrote a book called Nothing to be Frightened of. Um, and he's a, an agnostic secularist, and he's trying to process in that book death. Mm. the experience of death and dying. Um, and in that book, he, uh, he talks about, um, like he describes himself as saying, I was never baptized. I never went to Sunday school. I've never been to a normal church service in my life. And yet the first line of his book is, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Mm. That's mm. right. And so as we talk about what is this modern culture that we live in, I think what we're seeing, um, so I'm, I grew, my formative years, my teenage years were in the 90s um, mm-hmm. and then young adulthood in the early 2000s. During that time, uh, new atheism was all the rage, right? Mm-hmm. There was this presumption that uh, because of people like Dawkins and Hitchens and a little bit later on, uh, the Sam Harris's of the world, that uh, this new construct of atheism was finally going to win the day that Nietzsche's prophecy, that religion would end, would finally come to fruition. And we would live mm-hmm. in this golden age of like pure secular humanism, mm-hmm. whatever that meant. Um, what seems clear, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, is that project has largely failed. Mm-hmm. Right. And that the modern world isn't defined by this new atheism, but rather, I think that the phrase that I use is a, a sort of secular paganism. Mm. Um, because what you're seeing in the world is this uh, this need um, for and this recognition of uh, a spiritualism. 
right? Or that we yeah. are all in some ways spiritual beings and that just can't be tamped down no matter how hard we try. Uh, and so there's a shift that has taken place, right? Um, I don't believe in God, but I miss him, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's a, a PhD and professor, his name is Nathan Jacobs. Uh, he was telling a story once about a, a woman that he met and she said, I'm an atheist, but I think my apartment is haunted. <laughs> and I think that speaks to kind of the spirituality that exists yeah. in the world today, right? That yeah. we've ha- we have a loss of maybe a transcendent God, mm. but there's a recognition that these spiritual beings, or uh, I think Jonathan Bajot talks about them nebulously as uh, egregores, right? Um, mm. And that um, these... These beings, these spiritual beings uh, exist in the world and they're different than us. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they're, um, maybe they're friendly, maybe they're not. Um, but the reality that they are there is accepted, is recognized, mm-hmm. is commonplace. I think C.S. Lewis even kind of gets into that for a bit there when he's like, people will have, there's a difference between fear and like dread. Mm. And I forget exactly his wording, but it's something to the effect of the the numinous um, is that everyone kind of intuitively has this maybe broken in some regards, this Mm. intuitively knows that there's some other either danger or comfort or something going on in certain, in certain ways or certain places Um, in the, on the ride over, uh, over to Josh's place here. Joel and I were talking about so the new new atheist movement, like you were mentioning, um, had a lot of movement, had a lot of traction. But then, once it's done standing up against, let's say, organized religion, quote unquote, <laughs> it kind of just there's nothing there, and so you're you're left without a framework. And I think that that's kind of what you're getting at when you're describing that weird post enlightenment pagan weird yeah, cultural yeah. viewpoint yeah. well because Nietzsche's point was always that it was going to be replaced not that it was going to be nothing yeah it was right. always going to be something it was never going to be yeah. nothing yeah, the and then the new atheism movement made the mistake of trying to make it nothing and that's it just doesn't work it leaves a void and yeah. i think that void was quickly filled with this um like you said, the new ageism, the, the Baha'is of the world, mm-hmm. the, you know, these integrated faith traditions that just had no philosophical or theological basis, but still sought to be the spiritual junk food that filled right. humanity, right? Um, yeah. Well, and, and so as you guys know, of course, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, the teacher, Kohelet, said that. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, a parallel experience, I think, in church history um, when you look at the decline of the Roman Empire uh, and in the in the rural areas, at the same time as you get the decline of the Roman Empire, you get the rise of these mystery religions, mm-hmm. right? And with the rise of these mystery religions, mysticism, there's a sense of fanaticism that also comes along with that. Um, in some respects, as we look at the decline of Christianity, you're getting the rise of these mystery religions. Yeah. Um, I have a, a sister-in-law um, I would love if she listened to this podcast, but she never will. She self-identifies as a pagan Wiccan. Mm. Fun. Um, that is the fastest growing religion yeah. in North America. 
my memory's right. If Only that data because is the still bar right. is so low. Yeah, the bar is like, low. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Generic it's paganism. It's like realtors yeah. are the fastest growing business. It's like, yeah, but it's a yeah. realtor. Yeah, no, that's that. <laughs> Um, but even 30 years ago, right? Like that, that would have not been a socially acceptable thing to say. Yeah. Um, but now like she has a community, right? And, um, and not just like on discord, she actually has a people that she gathers with in her hometown and, um, yeah. And there's a whole range of practices associated with that, um, from the naturalistic experiences, but also, you know, micro dosing different mm -hmm. drugs and yeah. or right. macro dosing. Well, yeah, not <laughs> at least not in her experience. Yet. Oh yeah, true. Um, but so my, my point in bringing that up is that you have these parallels um, to the, the modern circumstance of living life and faith as Christians that, that relate pretty closely actually to a, a pre-Christian era, yeah. right? To the, the early church uh, and how they had to, uh, at that time, engage in the paganism of, of their day and um, the importance and the distinction um, uh, between uh, paganism, which is fundamentally like, uh, in some respects, a closed system, right? Like everything exists within the imminent frame, to use language from Charles Taylor, um, whereas Christianity wants to say, no, there's the imminent frame, but then there's also the transcendent, mm. right? And um, Christians fundamentally believe in a being other than us, other than that which is here, and that transcendent being um, is God. And Charles Taylor, who has, has done some really awesome work in his uh, book, The Secular Age, in mapping out kind of how we got here, mm -hmm. um, he talks about this persistent spirituality as the, the haunting of the imminent frame. And so there's this disenchantment with the world that has happened and the loss of transcendence, but we experience attempts to re-enchant the world through these um, pagan that's, spiritual practices. That's a, that's a good image. The, the universe is a haunted house and God's the ghost. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you might be stretching the image, although if God is dead and we have killed him, that may be the way he remains present. Um, yeah. in our hearts and minds, right? So again, to the teacher, he's placed eternity in the heart of every man, mm. right? Yeah. Um, there's something um, that God does in us by virtue of being created in his image that uh, compels us towards him, even if ultimately apart from his grace, that um, direction is mm -hmm. you know, misoriented. Um, alongside transcendence with this move away from atheism to this paganism there's alongside transcendence there's words like meaning and purpose are popping up more and more in culture in media in like social media like instagram videos there's a lot of motivational stuff and a lot of people going to like mm -hmm. not just paganism but like wisdom traditions like stoicism or mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that where it's not necessarily a religion of sorts but it's just a discipline practice um, why, why do you think meaning and purpose are popping up so much? Not just the transcendent. So I think, um, with the loss of a transcendent source of meaning, 
or the loss of a, uh, a recognition of um, our identities being rooted in the fact that we are created in the image of God and that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we are constantly being transformed into his image with the loss of that even sort of sociocultural context, right? Um, or even the loss of that vocabulary uh, in the world. Um, of course, people are going to ask questions like, who am I? Right? Like mm. uh, religion and organized religion has uh, played the role in society of helping you answer those worldview questions. Right? And sometimes um, you can look at history and they didn't help you answer, but they spoke to you the answer from on high. Right? Um, and so then you have this question of, okay, how do I adopt that as my own? And then so there's this process of discernment. Discernment in, in the world today is called deconstruction, and people are leaving faith of their youth behind yeah. um, because they have avenues to do that. They have communities that affirm that um, in them. But with that, with the loss of... Um, even a, a, a traditional source of identity with the loss of a traditional um, bounded set community, uh, it has created a space where uh, doubt and uh, discernment becomes absolutely necessary to figure out uh, who you are. Right, the question "Who am I?" Uh, was once regularly answered each Sunday in church, or as part of your Sunday school program, or part of your family life at home. Even if it wasn't a religious answer, the question "Who am I?" was, "Well, I'm the baker's son, and I will be a baker, yeah. right, going forward." Or, "I'm the cobbler's son, and I will be a cobbler," right? Mm -hmm. um, or, "I'm a warrior." Mm -hmm. Right, like those, it was defined um, in many respects by the culture around us. Now that no longer is happening, and so people are begging the question: Okay, who do I get to be? And we live in this time. Again, back to Charles Taylor, who's done a marvelous job of, of mapping this out. That um, he defines it as the age of authenticity, and what he means in part of what he means in that um, is that we get to define for ourselves our own purpose and our own meaning and our own identity. And the, the arbiter of what is true is my own heart or my own sense of the world. Uh, and that's done in community. It's not necessarily um, yeah, exclusive individualism, although those two things do go hand in hand in glove um, because you can't separate from community. And so asking questions like, purpose and meaning and the people are, are hungry for that um, especially in a fast-paced ever-changing world right that there's a, a desire to be connected to something deeper and bigger and uh, more transcendent or that is connected into history that you know roots me grounds me in something more and bigger than myself um, all this makes perfect sense to me in this time of um, of wondering and confusion and uh, really ambiguity. Yeah. If I can interject a little bit, you talked about um, identity is found in community to a degree. Um, do you, how would you recommend a young person negotiates their identity with their local church? What, like what routes do you see in the current church for an adult to do, or for a young adult, for a teenager, for anybody to do that, um, what what type of program or 
discipleship or mentorship would you recommend? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm hesitant to recommend a program because programs are contextually specific yes, and the success yeah. of a program in air quotes you can't see on the podcast but the mm-hmm. success of a program mm-hmm. um, is largely contingent upon the people running it mm-hmm. and so instead I think um, what's important um, are the uh, relationships within the community right and the spaces that churches create. Um, to engage people where they're at with their questions and with their struggles. Um, part of part of uh, how I do my work and part of what I believe it means to be a pastor um, is to uh, create spaces with people in relationship um, wherein we can ask each other really hard questions. I grew up in an age of the church where asking questions was kind of, if not frowned upon, like not explicitly, but you were sort of like given the implicit message like, you know, you accept this or you don't, but we're not here to wrestle with it. Like this Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, no pun intended, gospel truth, because it is Mm -hmm. gospel truth, but you don't get to ask questions. Mm -hmm. I read Um, the answer in a systematic in school and don't doubt it. That's right. Um, Whereas I think... Part of the impact of you know um, the the culture we live in is is the good impact is recognizing the importance of questions, recognizing the value of asking hard questions and wrestling through those things in community. Um, and so I want churches to be engaging young people with the stuff of their ordinary life um, and creating spaces and having relationships, whether they're mentor relationships or um, discipleship relationships within a, a youth program or a young adult program. Um, the context is less important. Yeah. The priority of having good questions centered around hard conversations, especially the ones that you don't feel like you should be allowed to ask. Yeah, those are the very questions that you should be asking and wrestling with other believers with, because if you don't, if we don't do that in the church, they're going to go to their online communities, um, and their online communities. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but the the sort of evangelical movement yeah. that is mm-hmm. um, so popular and in vogue right now that they, they have um, like they have missionary groups these ex-evangelicals who will, who will walk you through the process of deconstructing um, through online social media platforms to help you get away from the church of your youth or of your Do parents. Do they understand I, I the irony of ex-evangelicals going out <laughs> yeah. and helping? Like, wait, wait a second. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly the point. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I get them on, on my Instagram feed every now and then. It's just like, oh, 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 mm-hmm. interesting. <laughs> what, is, what have you been searching that your uh-huh. algorithm is feeding you uh-huh. that? <laughs> Instagram yeah. likes when I'm angry. You see. Yeah. Well, that's uh, fair. The algorithm yeah, likes yeah, anger. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Because comment- making yeah. young men angry. Yes. That's the. Yeah. That's the big, and that I think that's also this is a complete tangent. I think that's also how a lot of people find meaning, is in like via the world, is something is just placed in front of them, or like how culture is giving meaning, is like that's just something enraging is placed in front of them and they they feel like a hero or they feel like they're Mm. they're doing something for society because they're opposing this yeah they're they're part of a bigger opposition or for something just generic like passion is confused for meaning essentially yeah right Mm. um just because there's something to do means it should be done right it's like no not necessarily (laughs) um yeah i think the 
what I see as the biggest stumbling block to these ex-evangelical or deconstruction movements is that it's not deconstructionism if you never reconstruct. Right. You know, like nothing ever became of it. Again, if it's nothing, you didn't replace something. You just made something nothing. Right. Um, If that translates to an audio format without having a diagram, I hope it does. But um, yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned identity and, and whatnot. And in our previous conversation, you talked a little bit about existential and you talked about Kierkegaard. These are people that I, I like the existentialists. I like Kierkegaard. Um, reading some of the existentialists, uh, such as Camus and uh, oh, I can't think of the other guy, guy with the lazy eye, um, French as well. Uh, start. That's it. Start. Um, <laughs> what? It's getting somewhere. He has a lazy eye? Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could read two book, read two books at once. Wow. Um, no. Um, the modern identity is huge for the modern. Like, it doesn't matter what age you are. It seems like every generation in the current day is is ident- trying to find what their identity is, how it relates politically, religiously, within the family orientation. Um, like sexual identity is its whole new thing that's massive in our in our culture as well. Um, do you find that Kierkegaard, being a Protestant, let's say, uh, existentialist, is somewhat of an antidote to that? That's That's been my experience right. with Kierkegaard. Is, is, is It's like, yes, there is a certain amount of subjective ac- action within you. Like his whole anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, right? There's mm-hmm. so much to, to find your, to that, that defines your identity and how, how you move. And yet it's still like, yeah, but you can't be anything. And you have to recognize there's something inside of you that that is unchanging, right? Um, yeah, so I think um, Kierkegaard uh, can be helpful as a conversation partner okay. among many others. Um, for a little context, uh, the reason Caleb and I were discussing this previously, I was sharing a little bit of my own story where when I was 27... I was finishing my seminary degree, um, and I was studying the sort of post-enlightenment uh, Christian liberals and post-enlightenment philosophy in the Christian mm-hmm. tradition. Um, and for a period of time, it wrecked me. Like mm-hmm. I had a, a crisis of faith uh, where I was unsure um, what I believed or if I could believe. Um and uh, I became ownery and dismissive, and um, and two things uh, saved me in the midst of that by the grace of God. Um, one was my community, so my wife, who was incredibly patient uh, and who loved me in spite of that, uh, and my friends at seminary who let me rail against you know, traditional Orthodox Christianity for a moment, and then just asked a good question. Like, well, what about this? And sort of gently sort of steered me back towards Orthodoxy. Um, And they spent long hours um, with me in the midst of that. And I'm presuming uh, uh, spent long hours also in prayer alongside of that for me in that journey. And reading Kierkegaard. And so it was... Kierkegaard, who helped me um, uh, properly categorize um, the relationship between faith and doubt, the relationship of of asking questions and allowing for subjective experience in the midst of that, um, while ultimately um, ultimately submitting myself to the person of Christ. 
Um, and so I say Kierkegaard is good as a conversation partner because um, nothing will beat people in your life chatting and having conversations. And uh, especially at that time, I surrounded myself with people who were much brighter than I was, um, and they were able uh, to to be used of God to, to call me back out of that, um, what really was a, a dark night of the soul for, mm-hmm. for some time. Um, and so I do think uh, that's reading broadly uh, is really good for people mm-hmm. and reading outside your tradition is really good uh, for uh, your own development and your own learning and, um, we talked about the new atheist movements. I read all of Dawkins' books when he was publishing. I read mm-hmm. all of Hitchens' work. Um, I'll never forget, I had this little old lady walk into my church office. Um, God bless her, she was 87 years old, walked with a cane, Dutch accent. Uh, and she walked into my office, and she looked at my bookshelf, and she saw the Christopher Hitchens' book called God Is Not Great. Mm-hmm. And she read it. She's like, Pastor, what are you reading? <laughs> <laughs> she's like you're not going to preach on that are you and i'm like well maybe <laughs> in a way not how you would in think. a way yeah, yeah exactly um but it uh, it confused her for a moment um and then actually uh, sometime later i was doing a series on preaching against some of the ideas of the atheist uh, tradition and movement at the time and i held up that book and she just smiled I held up that book. Um, Point is, I think having these kinds of conversation partners is really good, but it's really important to do that um, in the kind of community that's going to hold you and and steer you um, towards an an Orthodox position, um, an Orthodox Christian position. I'm I'm currently reading a book right now by Trevin Wax called The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Um, and his goal in all of this is into this meaning crisis moment, right? Into this age of purposelessness and wandering. Um, how can, you know, Orthodox traditional Christianity um, be a balm to our hurting souls? Um, and he writes in a really compelling way that highlights the beauty um, and the cogency of the, the Christian tradition and the understanding of who Christ is and what he has accomplished and how God works in the world. Um, strongly recommend the book, um, even as I'm only three quarters of the way through it. Um, mm. But it's a great conversation piece. What was the, the book and who was it written by again? The Thrill of Orthodoxy by Trevin Wax. Nice. Mm. Nice. I suspect that that'll probably be a what have you read in the future. <laughs> yeah. So as like we, we've we've talked about this a lot um, and this because it's been like the, the subject of the conversation. But what how does how is the church going to deal with this problem moving forward? How should it what are the steps it should take? What are because there's different denominations are taking their own attempts and we'll get into that mm-hmm. in a bit. But how do you think the church as the body of Christ is going to have to deal with this here in the West for the Mm -hmm. coming decades, centuries? So I've I've already mentioned a little bit of the the parallels of our current increasingly post-Christian age to a a pre-Christian age. And so um, one of my loves is history. 
uh, spent some time studying the early church's response and engagement with the pagan culture around them. Um, and so I go back to uh, their experience as um, inspiration for how that can happen. Um, and I think, um, like I've said, I've, I've done some some work on this. I was part of a peer learning group where for a couple of years we read a whole bunch of material on the early church and their engagement with pagan culture and how that was shaped in the first few centuries of the church um, before Christianity became the official religion of the empire, because that's where we increasingly find ourselves in parallel to, with some notable exceptions uh, and differences. Um, in fact, I uh, at Redeemer University, I gave a, a lecture to one of their um, intro classes in theology, um, walking through the rise of Christianity uh, during that time frame. Um, if you guys are interested, I can send you the lecture. You can post it in the, the page notes, but mm -hmm. Cole's notes version. Um, I think that the answer to that question about how we do that now, uh, as informed by how the early church did it then, mm -hmm. um, has both a, a historical how, or a an historical how will we, and a, a theological how. Um, the historical how, I'll start with, looking as informed by the early church, um, one of the things that the early Christian church did beautifully and powerfully was redefine family mm -hmm. and redefine community uh, and social structures. And so in the Roman Empire, the family was defined, was ruled by the paterfamilias, the head of house, um, and he quite literally uh, ruled the family and dictated reality for um, those under his influence, more than just biological um, family members, but also slaves or associations and the like. Um, the Jesus movement comes along, right, and <laughs> says, who are my mother and my father? Right, but the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven, my mother and my brother. Right, um, sorry. And the early church continues that um, and redefines these social structures in such a way that um, someone like uh, the the shepherd of Hermes in, in the early church, um, he was. Uh, his story is that he is an infant who was uh, left in the exposure pile, and so. Mm -hmm. um, Children would be born, and they, if they were unwanted, they would be discarded in city dumps outside. Christians would go in, and they would collect these children as they found them, and then raise them as their own. A, a slave Christian found the found this uh, Hermes and um, raised him uh, as a Christian, and he became a, a leader in the second century church, to the point where there are some church fathers uh, prior to when the, the canon of the Bible was discerned, considered the writings of Hermes to be canonical. Mm -hmm. and so you have this slave who is raised up to a position of privilege. So they're redefining, the early church is redefining social structures. They gave them value when the world yeah, didn't. Absolutely, right? And, and they do the same thing with women. Right, mm -hmm. raising up women to places of uh, privilege in society, um, equalizing um, men and women in terms of sexual ethics, right? That it was just unheard of in the the culture of the day. 
And so the, the early church did that. That's one of the reasons why I believe you see this exponential growth that takes place um, in how they respond. There's another one that you get this transformation um, in, in areas of min- in, in mercy and justice, right? Um, so there's this plague that hits in the middle of the second century, the Antonine Plague, sometimes called the Galen Plague. He was a physician in Rome at the time who writes about it. Um, the, the early Christians would go into these plague-filled cities because the, the, the populace and the elites had left because they had country homes to go to, and the people who were ill and diseased would lay there dying. Mm. And Christians would go in en masse and just minister. They would bring bread and water. They would comfort people as they died. Um, and invariably, they would contract the plague. Most scholars agree that it was a form of smallpox, maybe two different strains at the time. Um, and they would contract a plague. But then um, many of them would recover. So then they were immune, miraculously immune, right. Mm-hmm. Right. and they would go into these places and be able to help people even as they were dying mm-hmm. of the plague, right? Um, and so the 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 elite um, and Galen, who has no love loss, uh, the physician, has no love loss for Christians, um, calls them um, imbeciles and uh, berates their rational abilities because mm. they believe in some guy and they live out of faith anyway. Um, but he praises them for this act of selfless love, right? And then what you see is you, as you trace the numbers, again, the church explodes, and so they're, they're serving, they're ministering, they're on the ground in places uh, where few people were willing to go. Mm-hmm. They went. Um, and then, lastly, looking at, at the historical how, um, one of the things that happens is that, um, and I, I will nuance this and say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church calls people to a high bar of living, a high bar of radical obedience to Christ in, mm-hmm. in sexual ethics, uh, in, in business ethics, in personal um, greed and issues of uh, personal obedience. And the church says, this is how you're going to live, and the Holy Spirit enables them to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that becomes really compelling for the people around them. There's something about this high bar and this willingness to commit to this that becomes compelling for the world around them. I think, similarly, right, in the church today, um, a high bar of commitment in terms of sexual mm-hmm. ethics, in terms of uh, obedience, in terms of um, focusing in and getting stuff done is compelling, right? Um, Jordan Peterson, Christian adjacent Maybe we'll see where he ends up, right? His mm-hmm. his 12 rules for life, mm-hmm. right? One of the reasons that was so successful is because people are hungry for a sense of order, mm-hmm. right? And, and order helps us make sense of life. Um, gospel living empowered by the Holy Spirit, right, mm-hmm. calls us to this, this sense of order. I think there's a really interesting thing with what you're saying where... Just like how many Christians know about the idea of how the word spreads so fast because, you know, writing in a common language, you have the Roman road and you have the empires all connected. But interesting what you're saying about the family and the the culture and like empowered living is the way that standard they held them to is not that far off from the Roman virtue standard of like the public. 
of like, no, you're doing this for the people. You're being law, like within the, your community, you're doing the best you can. You're, you're benefiting everybody around you and to the people above you on the hierarchy. So like that, and then you get to Christianity where they're saying, yes, it's, it's less about just doing it because that's what you have to do for the empire. It's doing it because, you know, you have this identity as a child of God, yeah. as an adopt. The Roman emperor is not the only one adopted by the gods. There was, there's a book that I read by, I think it's Larry Herthrow, um, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the First mm-hmm. Three Centuries. Larry Hurtado. Hurtado. Yeah, excellent gotcha. book. Yeah, it, it's phenomenal. I think yeah. I read it in like two weeks. It was yeah. so good. Um, but he, no, he goes, he goes into the, the uh, Christian's reaction to infanticide and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and one of the, like, talks about all the, all the kind of stuff that you mentioned there. Um, one of the things that he, that he goes into also was, um, not only did there, because there was this whole honor system that Josh was mentioning before, right? The, the virtue system and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Christianity provided this, the, an, an, almost an absolute moral framework of no, you do the thing that's right because it's right. Um, and of course that's in relation to your worship to God in relation to how God made you, how God made the world and all this kind of stuff. But it, it made in the same areas that it was similar to the Roman system of virtue and, and honor and all that. It gave it such a grounding that seemed to be harmonious with, yeah. with what people intuitively wanted to. Yeah, of course you, you want to be uh, an honorable person, um, mm-hmm. and it 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 motivated the uh, the masses. Like the Stoics would would say, like, okay, Christians have like they have their crazy theories and all that kind of stuff, a bunch of stupid whack, whatever. But they they're ethically like they're they're mm-hmm. they're robust. Mm-hmm. Um, they would they would mark how Christians m- live their lives like a lot of the like s- uh, uh, similar to some of those philosophical schools, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was surprising to them. Yeah. Um, well, you see that even after um, kind of post-exilic Judaism, you know, they have righteousness and they have holiness. But when Christ comes, it kind of puts a face to the name a little bit. Mm. Right, it's like they finally have an example of what that looks like, and then and then through the teachings of Christ, you just again you get um, it evolves into almost almost a social justice idea, <laughs> but again, um, just as the Ten Commandments, first right relationship with God, and then right relationship with man. You know, it's kind of the the priority of living. Um, that's cool. I, I liked your your comparison to um, Twelve Rules for Life. Uh, it was once described to me as the Bible without the Holy Spirit in it, yeah. which I was just like, that's a really, you're putting that a high ranking right there. I don't know. Um, but yeah. And so I, I think what both of you are, are getting at is the, is that next point, right? So mm-hmm. that, if that was the historical how, both in the early church and then what might that look like today in, in similar circumstance, um, is the theological how, mm-hmm. right? Is the, um, the theological reality. Um, and here... I'll draw a lot, even as an example of this, a case study and how this was done in the early church on First and Second Peter. Now, I believe that was a C ranking in your. Uh, <laughs> it's all. It's all God's word. <laughs> it's all God's word. It's just not Exodus or Genesis. <laughs> Um, but first, first and second Peter gives us a good picture, I think, a compelling picture of the theological foundation here. And so first Peter talks about being born again into a living hope, right? First Peter talks about um, being 
looking to the return of Christ, right, as the the fulfillment of all God's plan and action for history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what the early church does uh, in First Peter, especially as he talks about, you know, identifies his audience as strangers and aliens or as exiles, depending on the translation you use, living in the land, right, living in opposition to these uh, cultural and, and uh, religious ideas. He says... Uh, he provides for them a compelling picture of the future, right? A compelling picture of the realized glory of Christ. He provides for them something that says, in this world, you will have trouble, mm-hmm. but take heart, I've overcome the world. Yeah. Right? If you suffer for being called Christian, right? Praise the Lord that you have been called such, right? That you're following mm-hmm. uh, in the struggles of Jesus in that regard. And that theological foundation... Um, that that really like enabled the early church to be martyrs, yeah. right? And Stephen gets it; he gives us a glimpse, right, mm-hmm. in his martyrdom, and he sees heaven, and he sees the risen Christ there at the right hand of the Father, and just on the throne. Revelation, right, apocalyptic literature, really mm-hmm. is fueled to help us, yeah. right, in those moments and in these moments. Uh, and I think that's really critical, even for today, right? How do we, how do we? recapture uh, a longing for, I don't want to say heaven in the sense of like when we die, we go to heaven, Mm -hmm. but a longing for the return of Christ, Mm -hmm. right? A a prayer of Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that spurs us in the face of persecution, that spurs us in the face of trial and tribulation, that says, come what may in this world... I live for the world to come. That's the living hope that we've been born into. Yeah. And I think the the early church captures that, and I think that's something that that we as Christians in in the world today need to recapture in order to face whatever is coming. I think it's I think it's Chesterton, and I can't remember if it's Orthodoxy or Everlasting Man. He puts for the. And we'll see how accurate he is on this. There's some people that might disagree on this. Um, that other religious systems work in circles, right? And the Christian Christianity shows up on the screen on on the on the on the world, right? Um, and it presents a, a way that a way to actually move forward and an expected hope. Um, and then to to sim- oversimplify that and kind of look that back, it seems to be. Um, kind of what, when you're mentioning, we need to rekindle that idea of that future hope. Um, Christians, uh, Christian communities that begin to articulate their religion in a way that they can operate in a circle, that this is the circle of life and this is how you earn a Christian in this circle of life. Um, they've completely like lost that forward momentum, that mm-hmm. idea that there is. And with that forward momentum, there's the concept of the future hope, but there's also like moral progress, um, like societal progress and all those sorts of things that kind of come along um, some people may try to make that Western minded, but I think, I think a lot of historians kind of link that to that might've started somewhere in the first century kind of, um, do you think that that, is that kind of analogous to what you're saying there? Like there's this, there's this future idea that we need to orientate ourselves towards and it gives us direction and meaning rather than just a repetitive circle. I mean, if I if I understand what you're saying correctly, then I think yeah, that that is a, a minimum analogous, okay. right? Um, and I think that's right. I think um, 
like we are being called as Christians, right, um, to uh, experience the kingdom of God come in our hearts, and we are waiting for it to come in the world. And so as we uh, live out of that sure future reality, that's going to have an impact on how I live my life today, on the kinds of things that I love today, on the way that I love today, and what I'm willing to give up for that greater love, that future glory that is yet to be revealed in us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to maybe almost come full circle, one of the other really valuable uh, ideas from the early church, and First, first Peter is another great example of that, uh, is the identity that we have as Christians. Right. So what does it mean that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's mm-hmm. special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who's called you into his wonderful light? Right. And then Peter goes on and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles or aliens and strangers, depending on your translation, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. If that's not a banner for what the Christian church ought to look like in an increasingly post-Christian secular pagan age, I don't know what could be. And I think there's something deeply compelling about that, calling us uh, into a greater experience of who God is, of what he has done in Jesus Christ, and how we are transformed in this life for the next. I love that your answer is not reactionary or some sort of, you know, the newest book that's come out. It's just <laughs> built right from the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's exhibited in the early church. That's that's encouraging. And the fact that we had victory in the past, that we overcame moments like this is, I like that. Well, it's like the the Romans 8, the like, uh, I, I count the present struggles. Not worth comparing. Not worth comparing to the future glory. Yeah. And he yeah. says like, we, the... That future glory is because we were saved. Mm-hmm. It, it's confirmed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that gets in the way of that. Um, so that's really cool. We have this, we have this identity, and like with that community focus, right? Like church focused on community, and like it focused on our identity as Christians. Um, the church can kind of do that. We can. That's a really good way that the church can focus today because you see the destruction of the family unit in the West. Um, and f- just like the, the family unit was broken in Rome, it had this, like you were saying, this unequal distribution of authority between the male and the female and all that stuff. And Christianity brings in this beautiful picture of what that should look like. Um, and then the identity part. And you're seeing the identity lost in today's culture, and you're seeing the family being destroyed. And so Christianity can be the one that brings that back into being. Um, but there's there's Christian-like stuff in culture. There's Christian-adjacent intellectuals. You've mentioned Jordan Peterson. Um, but you've got other ones like James Lindsay, John Verveke, uh, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland... All these guys are speaking about things that are profound and almost transcendent and really cool. And many of us have read their stuff. I love that Tom Holland's that list. And he's just like a historian. <laughs> yeah. It's like not really like a mentor, but he type. He's yeah. just, he just writes cool books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do we like, 
should the church worry about them? Do we see them as some like the enemy of the perfect is the good? Do we should we see them as a problem or should we see them as a one of the stepping blocks that we can get people that are looking for the mm-hmm. transcendent and meaning to like help them pull up? Hey, Jordan Pearson says this Bible says it better. John Verveke says this Bible says it better and like keep pulling them up the ladder or is it a, a threat? People are going to stop halfway. So I think people, there are some who are always going to stop halfway, mm-hmm. right? There are some who are always going to um, go in a, a different direction. Um, our responsibility is not to determine for them the end, but to journey with them as a pilgrim. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, if people are uh, using these sort of Christian adjacent conversationalists and podcasters or authors or the like, um, and then it is God who uses that, right, mm-hmm. to, to draw them to himself, um, then we will see that happen. Yeah. Right. I, I have confidence that if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through any of these individuals and they're mm-hmm. much more eloquent uh, than any donkey I've heard, <laughs> um, which True. may, may speak to your comment about the danger of, mm-hmm. of those individuals. Um, but again, uh, if I come back to it, like discern those kinds of conversations or those people, those authors in community, right? Do mm-hmm. that in a, in a place, in a group, in a gathering that says, you know, I just read this really awesome thing by Tom Holland, or um, I just listened to this amazing lecture in After Socrates from John Verveke, mm-hmm. right? And that really made me wonder about this, mm-hmm. right? What do you think? So that our job is to... Um, not only create those spaces that we can have those kinds of conversations with people in our lives, but that we, um, we follow their and our curiosity, uh, into the, mm-hmm. the, the exploration of the things of God. Um, and I think we will find that as we draw closer to God, um, it's him drawing closer to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's also something interesting about a lot of them are also on that journey. Of course. Like we've mentioned Jordan Peterson, but like you and I went to a conference for Vakey was there. That was cool. And there was like four or five times where we were wondering where is like, is this guy going to convert like today? <laughs> like right now. <laughs> a lot of them actually like openly confessed. It. It's like, yeah, no, I'm going somewhere. I don't know where yeah. it is. Well, yeah. so so Paul Kingsnorth is a great example of that. I'm not okay. sure how many of you guys are, your listeners are familiar with him, but um, he was hook, line, and sinker into environmentalist like activism and um, I hesitate to use the term because I know it's loaded, but like woke ideology. Um, and uh, he says that he couldn't escape God. Um, mm-hmm. that he just kept coming back and he tried Buddhism, but no, and he kept coming back. And, um, and so his, his testimony, if you have a chance to, to look it up, there's some, there's podcasts and it's on YouTube in different places uh, is worth listening to. Um, as he wrestles through the, the cultural ideologies and how he, uh, over time and in conversation, right. Brought that, um, into, you know, a conversation with with uh, with the Bible and the Kingdom of God and what that means for who He is and how He mm-hmm. engages life. 
Um, and so, you know, um, one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, my prayer is that those people and everyone on that journey will do it willingly um, and will do it before his glorious return. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will happen. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. yeah well, I think those guys are emblematic of the curiosity of the increasingly post-Christian culture that you were mentioning earlier. I, I think that those are just, obviously each one has millions of followers or, or, or who, however many, maybe thousands. I don't know. I haven't kept up on the numbers of it. Um, but I think they're definitely the, the creaking of the floors, realizing everybody's kind of moving in the same direction, you know, or to use an old, uh, picture, the canary in the coal mine, mm. yeah. the, the yeah. first sighting that something's happening. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I had to say on that. I just thought it was really cool and I wanted to tie it up. <laughs> yeah, no, that Put a bow seeing on it. them as the warning bell, that culture's shifting. It's really cool because like a few of them, like Raveki, is also moving, like actively voicing that the world needs to move away from that yeah. old atheism, that old nothingness. Mm-hmm. Um, follow, and there's Christians coming alongside of him and helping him do that. Follow the most common pagan tradition and that is convert to Christianity. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And then return and convert those who weren't converted. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which relates to our Ruth episode. <laughs> and also um, to Vikings. So let's just tie it all together. <laughs> I didn't think we'd talk about Vikings in today's I've episode. been dying to talk about Vikings this whole episode. You just didn't know about it. <laughs> okay. Um, do you think we have, killed? do you think we have time for the... Stuart's largest question or should we go to his funnier ones to wind it down? Oh, I like his last questions the best. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, we're, go for it. I, we yeah. Got, we got time. We're, we're only an hour into this, man. Oh yeah. True. Okay. So back to the, like, we've talked about like the big idea, the macro idea. Um, there are some denominations, different denominations within Christian Protestantism. Some Catholic or Orthodox churches have been, making decisions on where to go with this issue. Progressivism and modern culture is leaking into the church and theologies are shifting at different levels and in different places. You know, in the Christian church, places come to mind like the United Church or the Baptist Church or the Lutheran Church. But every denomination has subgroups that are going in different directions with progressivism, LGBTQ, social justice and like how to deal with those ideas. Um, some have accepted them and have started to change the church's tradition on these ideas. And then some have wholeheartedly rejected them completely. And some in the middle, where do you think the church should land with these uh, new ideas that the church is dealing with? These aren't the funny questions I was talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> you said we had lots of time, so we're going yeah, with We this. do, we do. <laughs> so I think um, there is a, a demonstrable, um, I'll say this, a demonstrable correlation between um, the acceptance of uh, progressive ideology or doctrine mm-hmm. and the decline of the church. 
Now, I say it's a correlation. I don't want to say it's a causation. Uh, Kevin Flatt, who's a sociologist and historian uh, at Redeemer University, uh, has written his PhD tracing the the rise of um, mainline theology and churches and the decline uh, in Canada starting in the, the 60s uh, until I think the late 90s is when his... Um, his window ends. Um, and he, he demonstrates that there's this correlation that goes on. I'm not going to say it's a causation because I don't know the intricacies of, uh, mm-hmm. of all of these things. And I'm not sure um, if it uh, is necessarily the case that accepting a progressive uh, doctrine or changing, you know, um, your, your, uh, approach to reading scripture is necessarily going to be the result, or if that's any different than like this would have happened in our culture anyway. That being said, um, anecdotally, um, and I think um, even even like compellingly, um, it seems to me that when you begin going down the road of progressivism or when you begin going down the road of um, casting off the sorts of things that make Christianity exclusive, right? That make Christianity unique. Mm -hmm. um, It's no wonder that you're going to lose people along the way. Because if, if there's nothing distinct about you, why do I want to be of you? Mm-hmm. Right. What's the point of identifying as you if that means nothing? Right. If to say I'm a Christian doesn't mean anything for how I live or what I believe different from the world around me, then why would I go on saying that I'm a Christian? Yeah. Right. There, there seems to be no point in that. So if two things are equal, they're the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that you know you can you can see that and i think you know in contrast to the early church uh, they did the opposite mm-hmm. right they they raised the bar and they said let's make it more difficult but in the power of the spirit recognize that this is yeah. uh, this is possible right that you can live this kind of way whether it's an idea of a sexual ethic or um the defining communities in in new and exciting ways um an example i I have a I heard a story from a friend of mine, um, a pastor at a church, and I won't I won't name either. Um, but this church has uh, has shifted their seats from facing the front, where there's a historic old cross at the front of their sanctuary. They shifted them ninety degrees, so that they no longer, when they're in church on Sunday and listening to their preacher or pastor or whatever title they give that person. Um, they're no longer looking at the cross because the cross was oppressive to them, <sighs> right? Sitting under the mm-hmm. cross was oppressive to their their sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't take it down because the church is historic and old, and it's used by movie sets all the time. <laughs> so and money. So they make their money by renting out the church and having it look old and historical, and then they just turn their seats 90 degrees when they gather on Sunday. So you're telling me the non-Christian movie 
production crew has to turn the seats 90 percent or 90 degrees whether it's the whether it's the non-christian movie crew that does it or the one of the individuals that's on staff at the church and i don't know that's funny um, but in order to make it look like a traditional church yes they have to turn the chairs it's 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 funny that in order to like there's there's a physical thing that has to change in order to go okay but this is what a church should be like Right. <laughs> to and present it in a secular world. And, and it's the non-believers that know that. Yeah. Or at least it has to be made that way to present it to the non-believers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and we laugh, um, and I understand the, the laughing, I do, um, but really it's heartbreaking, yeah. right? That we Absolutely. get to this place where, you know, um, we have like fully embraced this cultural liturgy um, of, you know, the atonement as divine child abuse, mm-hmm. right? Where we mm-hmm. fully embrace this cultural liturgy that the cross is oppressive. Now, I will be the first to tell you that Christians are hypocrites. I am one of them, and our history isn't great. <laughs> we have yeah. been uh, bad examples of what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Absolutely. And yet, people aren't just turning away from us. They're turning away from the cross. Mm-hmm. They're turning away from mm-hmm. Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And like John the Baptist, I want to stand in front of you and say, I must become less so that he can become greater. Mm-hmm. That's my goal in the work that I do. And I wish that that was what our history looked like. It's not, and we have mm-hmm. to own that. Um, but I, So to answer your question, I think there is a correlation. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go so far as to say a causation, um, but... You know, the, sociologically, you can see see how that has happened. Yeah. Well, and even like with, with we talked about with the Christian adjacent intellectuals, progress, like churches taking on progressive ide- ideology might not be like the thing that's causing it, but a symptom of the reason why people are leaving, like of the change that's actually causing people to leave, hmm. like like a correlating symptom. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. C.S. Lewis. Uh, what's the one where he talks about men without chests? Which one's that? Something about that. Anyways, it's like... Uh, I don't remember. We laugh at honor and are surprised when there are traitors among us. Yes. Right? I think the same can be said of holiness. It's like when you don't ask holiness of people, you can't be surprised when you get something right. that doesn't meet the bar yeah. because you never set the bar at a realistic place to begin with. Yeah. And if people are going to leave because not only is the challenge too easy, it doesn't have a payoff. Right. Um, not to be like the most holy old guy or anything like that, but uh, you are the youngest in the room. I mean, but I, th- I think that's obvious. I think there's, to your point, I think that there is something compelling um, when you see people willing to sacrifice for the gospel. Right. Mm-hmm. There's something compelling when when parents see their kids. Right. Um, come into faith uh, or when kids see their parents give, you know, their Saturday night so that they can go do this or that ministry at the church or when, uh, when you see that have a, a demonstrable impact on, on what you do and how you show up in the world. Um, that's really compelling, right? When, um, when people talk about the, the rise of the nuns, in today's culture, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, mm-hmm. right? People who have no religious belief or affiliation. Um, and they go, how does that happen? Um, I think part of the answer 
is that there is a generation of Christians who didn't model vital faith, who didn't model meaningful, deep relationship to God. And so there's a group of people who looked at the church and went, this doesn't mean anything to you, so why should it mean anything to me? Yeah. 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 And then there's, inversely, the rise of Christian nationalism and the fall of church attendance, which means it's now a heritage and not an identity. Yeah. Right. So that kind of falls in the same uh, ballpark as what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Not that we're going to talk about Christian nationalism today. I'm sorry. That was yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah, let quickly the, avoid. Wasn't that. on the agenda. I'm Stuart's, sorry. Stuart's going to want to just want to. Stuart's going. He's going to be involved. on that podcast when we do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's. It's also what's interesting with what you're saying is also when people move into the progressive identity when they when they muddy the waters when they when they don't make Christianity a distinctive thing they're doing the exact opposite of what the early church did like we talked about before which is presenting Christ in the church as uh, distinct from Roman culture or as distinct from Greek or as distinct mm-hmm. from the world there and so that's that's cool that we're seeing the the negative effect of when you don't make Christianity distinct. And then when you do make Christianity distinct, like we see in history, the church grows. When the when the when Christians are being the body. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. well and I, I think there's there's increasingly uh, evidence to that also being true today. Mm-hmm. Right? That you have churches that are uh, holding that high bar churches that are uh, expecting a lot of the people who, you know, uh, fellowship with them. Um, There's a a rise in the desire for, you know, deep expository preaching um, Mm -hmm. that seems to be, uh, again, contra the narrative from, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when you had to make things easy and approachable and quote unquote seeker sensitive. Um, Mm -hmm. There's another example of a failed movement in in church growth models. Um, But yeah, that there's something about, uh, you know, demanding something of us uh, Mm -hmm. that seems to be compelling for people. It's an oversimplification, but I mean, it's, it's how capitalism even works, right? If people see something as valuable, if it has a high price tag, they're like, well, then it must be worth something. But if you make the gospel like, yeah, it has no real impact in your life. It doesn't really actually change you. Well, then... Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you any different well, than anyone sh- else. Yeah, why yeah. should I go? Yeah. Um, and the funny part is, is Christianity is the grace. Grace is free, and it will cause you to change. But that change mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. is part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned one book earlier that was uh, Thrill of Orthodoxy. What are two other books that address this issue? Um. So I was anticipating this question. So I came prepared with a list. Oh, beautiful. More than three. Yeah. Oh, way more than three. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I will start, um, I will say that uh, one book that was very helpful for me, we've already mentioned Larry Hurtado's book, as far as understanding the early church, that was a really good one. Um, Another one for tracing that history, along with Secular Age by Charles Taylor that I've mentioned, um, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, 
uh, traces that history and helps us uh, see what's available. That's a bit of a slog if you mm-hmm. are not an academic reader. Um, apparently, he's published a, a more approachable one, but I don't. I haven't seen that one. I I can't speak I've to whether or not things. that. Yeah, that's a strange new world. That was just right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but as far as accessibility goes and, and seeing um, like modern culture and what is a, a meaningful Christian response, um, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, The Secular Creed, mm. it's really accessible. It's 120 pages or so. Um, we did a discussion group, an adult ed group at our church on that mm-hmm. book. Uh, the, the turnout to the discussion was really good, um, and everybody read the book. Even people who don't ordinarily read books were able to get through this one. So that's a really uh, accessible kind of entry-level discussion. And Sarah is, is very good in her writing. Yeah, Josh, Rebecca, sorry, Rebecca. I think Josh has a review of that book on our website. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And there's links to that um, there you go. on our website as well, if you're interested in that yeah. one. Yeah. Which I got from the church group at the <laughs> oh, yeah. at the discussion, so worked out. Anything else? Um, so maybe I'll, I'll I'll recommend a book by uh, James K. A. Smith, uh, which mm. is called "How Not to Be Secular." Not is in parentheses. Um, and if you don't have the capacity to read all thirteen hundred pages of a secular age by Charles Taylor. Uh, Jamie Smith's How Not to Be Secular is an excellent little short, again, it's only like a hundred and uh, a few pages, mm-hmm. introduction or a primer on Taylor's work, A Secular Age. Yeah. Um, and it's a great, uh, great like compendium to read to, to make sense of, of all of that. So I would recommend that one as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And I could keep going, of course. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, so we're now going to get into the unrelated fun questions. Um, that was a good like capstone on where to go to like, finish. This was a very good discussion, but it's not the whole discussion the church needs to have. Absolutely. And those books are a good place to jump off from for the audience member to listen. But now we've got a really important question for you. Who would win in a fight, Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen? Oh, that's a good question. You know, Joel Osteen is a big fan of putting his bench press videos out on social media. <laughs> uh, but Joyce Meyer might also be like the $6 million woman. She's had so much work done nowadays <laughs> that it, it might and actually be hard to know who would win that one. She's got energy. <laughs> like, like for somebody that busy writing that many books. You assume she writes her own books. <laughs> hey. So, I, I have no reason why to think that she would be lying about that. Because the ghostwriter <laughs> industry and broader evangelicalism is a thriving industry. Yeah. Do you think her and Joel Austin have the same ghostwriter? Or do you think... Because like the part of me feels like Joel Austin actually believes what he says, unlike the others. There's a little bit of me that's like... <laughs> like, he's wrong. We all know that. But like... Unlike a, the others, you mean like... Uh, what's his name? Pop what's off. Um, Crefro Dollar is was no no no. What's the uh, the other guy who's got the like? He made a bunch of like the pastor who did during COVID. He's like I'm gonna blow COVID away. Like COVID oh, Kenneth Copeland. Ken- oh, Kenneth Copeland. That guy looks like a robot. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. He does yeah. look like a robot. Like, like, but there's like there's a bit of Joel Austin that's like I think he buys it because he's rich. Like like he's it's actually worked for him his like whole ideology. 
but yeah, I've I've not met him nor mm-hmm. listened to him in places other than overproduced uh, <laughs> media videos. So yeah, I, I don't. I'm not going to gauge his authenticity of belief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of yeah. love Joel Osteen though. <laughs> like I'm kind of in his corner a little bit. I don't think he's like there theologically. I don't think he's got depth to him. But uh takes a lot to be Value Village's number one bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> that whole thing was a lead up, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and he's got a good hair. That's that's all I'm saying, you know. That's true. I but guess. that's also bought and paid for. True. Well, you know. Yeah. By the five thousand dollar altar side seats. Fair enough, but if the yeah. Lord gives you good hair, use it. Through the, yeah, use it. <laughs> use it for His glory. That's all I'm saying. The Lord gives out talents: some five, some ten, some yeah. one. You, you gotta have ten fa- all in hair. <laughs> you gotta have enough faith for the follicle, brother. That's all I'm saying. Okay, okay alongside that, great question. Uh, top five popes. Top five popes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Why is Leo the first the f- number one? As a reformed <laughs> pastor, top five popes. Um, so I'm going to have to go ahead and give it to uh, Pope Gregory um, for helping us define Orthodox Christology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm going to have to go ahead and... Is he also the one with the calendar? The Gregorian calendar? Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to have to go ahead and... Uh, jump up to Pope John Paul II mm. um, because he, I mean, he was a, a theologian first. Mm. Um, and uh, as a reformed theologian, if you kind of take off his chapter on Mary and his chapter on church hierarchy, it reads very similar to a reformed <laughs> systematic theology. Um And then I'm probably going to run out of meaningful knowledge of popes and which ones are good um <laughs> just may, don't say maybe Borges. benedict benedict just because he he was supposed to be the safe pope and it turned out yeah. he was theologically conservative um, yeah but then nice we ended switch. up with pope francis is that the result, one that just so. had the pacemaker put in and quit yeah yeah okay <laughs> just check it that's yeah. my knowledge of popes that's all i know <laughs> that's just from the two popes movie yeah. on netflix yeah, yeah. what a great movie <laughs> <laughs> Was Shia LaBeouf in that one, or am I thinking of something else? No, that's, no. he's got a new one coming out. Uh, he, Padre Pia. Mm, he, that's yes. what it is. Yeah. Padre Pia, yeah. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins, and yeah, I forget who the other one who played Pope Francis. Oh, the guy who, uh, this is a wild reference. This is not the thing he's known for the best, but the guy who played uh, Cobra Leader in uh, G.I. Joe 2. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most relatable <laughs> reference, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, also, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, uh, the female leads, uh, father. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's just on IBM right now. I can see it. <laughs> IMDB. That's what it's called. IBM is IBM something, is something else. else. IBM is like the adventure of the computer. <laughs> oh man. Well, clearly he wasn't on the page. I just made that up. <laughs> okay. Um, do you got one more? I think you need one more. I need one more Pope. Yeah. I don't have another Is it Leo one, one of the... I, I, it's got to be Pope Leo the first. Yeah, sure. Okay. We'll give it to Pope Leo. He, take, he like, until the hun comes down, and then, you know, they talk, nobody knows what they say, and he doesn't sack Rome. <laughs> and he leaves. And every, the historians are just, why? <laughs> yeah. 
It's it's not Peter. The <laughs> that would be a wild Peter word. is the rock. You like his church book? Built. I do. I love his book. Absolutely, but I wouldn't call him the Pope. You're right. You're right. You're right. I am Protestant after all. <laughs> true. 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 Um, Chris, it has been wonderful having you on the podcast. You have been. You're you're the first guest we've had, and the best one to date. Absolutely, and I I love Kevin. He's been my mentor. I don't think he's going to be better than you on this, but no. <laughs> wow. yeah. this is the first time we've talked about Kevin being on the podcast. <laughs> he will be. Yeah. Okay. Josh has already booked Kevin. So no, but, uh, okay. you guys yeah. clearly need to have a meeting. Of it's on the schedule. Here. Yes. Yeah. I, I think he's talked about it. And also here's the thing. When Kevin goes on, I will tell him he was the better guest for his, for his ego as well. Okay. So that so was only for my ego. So yeah. Okay. So you're lying. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it helps me know something about you, Josh, that you think my ego needs to be stroked in that way. Yeah. I'll be at work yeah. on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes late, like every other week. Or, yep. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um, uh, thank you for having me, guys. I really appreciate uh, you hanging out. And let me just say, um, as I talk about the importance of creating spaces to have good conversations, um, I think what you're doing here is one of those kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm. I appreciate uh, a bunch of young men getting together and talking seriously about theology and about the Bible um, and its impact on your own lives, um, and then inviting people in online spaces uh, around to to be part of that conversation. I think it's really important work and really good work, and I'm, you know, I continue to listen as you put them out. So, mm-hmm. good job. Thank you. Thank you very much Appreciate for that. Appreciate that. Yeah. And so. just to reiterate what you're saying there, um, if you want to leave a comment or have any concerns about the what we've said or what we've done, um, <laughs> or even if you've got your own uh, tidbit of advice, please just leave it in the comments or send us an email. You can send us an email at secondratesaints at gmail.com. Um, you can check us out at secondratesaints.com. And, uh, you know, we're uploading weekly all summer. So um, hop into the conversation. Thanks for listening, guys. Just end it. How very Catholic of you.